Welcome to Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, professional and executive education for the real world. I'm Kate Joyner. Today we continue our Cool QUT series, sharing with you the insights of our talented researchers in the QUT community. Today in the spotlight is someone I've had my sights on for a while, Associate Professor Gary Mortimer, who is a researcher in the School of Advertising, Marketing and Public Relations in the QUT Business School. I often hear Gary in the media shedding light on issues in the volatile retail landscape in Australia and internationally. He is an active researcher in the areas of food retailing and consumer behaviour. His Twitter handle is The Grocery Doctor. Uh, Gary sits on the Council of the Australian Marketing Institute and is also on the advisory board of the Institute of Food Products Marketing in Philadelphia. Hi, Gary. Hi, Kate. Great to chat. So it actually has been a big week in retail, so we've got, actually got a lot to cover, haven't we? Well, we have. It's been uh, exceptionally busy, I, I think, as we, as we record this today. We've got uh, clearly um, you know, Toys R Us that have announced that they will exit the market and close their stores. We've got uh, supermarkets trialling different style format stores. We've got West Farmers announcing directions forward for their businesses. Uh, there's a lot happening in the sector. There's a lot happening, and some of it feels like there's definite, a definite sort of seismic that the plates are shifting a little bit. Absolutely. So, and we're seeing levels of competition um, never seen before. So, you know, Amazon obviously entered into Australia in the uh, the end of December last year, announcing this week that they propose to bring in their Prime model. Uh, two days before that, uh, eBay uh, launched their uh, version of Amazon Prime uh, to combat Amazon. So it's not just the bricks and mortar physical retailers we're seeing uh, play out in this competitive space, but also online as well. Yes, that's right. So we, we've got an opportunity to drill down some of those issues. So among all that very uh, sort of uh, interesting dynamics, uh, what is your special uh, part of that? What do you like to research? So I guess I originally started as a consumer researcher, and I think I still do. If I look at my manuscripts and, the, and my publications, uh, it's very much about understanding why we buy, why we shop, what motivates us to shop. Um, I, I look very much at perceptions of risk, um, yeah, things around loyalty, but not just behavioural loyalty, but attitudinal loyalty. Uh, more recently, I'm looking at how religiosity affects the way we make purchase decisions and the risks associated. Religion sort of frames a lot of what we do, our religions, and I, I think I stumbled across this looking at some data out of the Philippines. And the Philippines is a really highly um, Catholic-esque country, so a lot of Catholicism in the Philippines, yet also more recently the highest proportion of oral contraception. Um, being consumed in that particular country. That's a really interesting insight from... It's uh, not what you'd expect. Not what you'd expect in a, in a devout Catholic uh, country, if you follow Catholicism. Um, certainly contraception is not one of those things that you would do. So the behaviour is shifted um, amongst consumers. So we really want to have a look at how religion might affect your perceptions to purchase certain products. We think about, um, you know, I, I guess uh, Christians and gambling, uh, Islam and uh, social media. There's a lot of uh, connotations involved in that. So I guess that's really where my research lies. But I think strategically what I'm now looking more at is retail strategy and how the retail market is changing and how retailers are now going about I guess, competing in the marketplace and adapting and shifting strategy to remain competitive. Yes, yeah, so um, just in our opening comments, you did mention, a, you know, quite a lot of change in the Australian retail sector. So 
that I mean, one of the things you mentioned there was the entry of, um, Am well, Amazon has been here for not quite 12 months? Six or seven months now Amazon's been here or active in, in the country. Yeah, and um, everyone's been having a, a sort of a nervous watching brief on that, I think. But the, the announcement of their prime uh, was this week. That's uh, correct. So, and then the general commentary has been that I've seen, oh, well, they haven't really made a big splash yet. Maybe we, we, um, all our nervousness is misplaced. But I don't know. I think what I've seen of Amazon and their strategy, they're quite happy to take a very long position so, and to, uh, to wait, <laughs> wait it out and uh, find their feet, find their market, uh, get a lot of data is their specialty. Yeah. Um, and then uh, be quite strategic uh, in their moves. What, what's your thoughts about uh, And then with that, how our Australian retailers are sort of adjusting around that. Yeah, so, so I think if we looked at the reporting of Amazon 18 months ago, uh, it was quite alarmist. And certainly the headlines read, Amazon entering Australia, it's going to decimate retailing as we know it. Uh, Amazon will destroy retailers. Uh, Richard Goiter famously uh, said uh, at an AGM when he was the CEO of West Farmers, uh, when Amazon enter, they will eat our breakfast, lunch and dinner. Um, so really it was around how much Amazon would actually disrupt the retail market. And that hasn't happened. And I was sort of critical even back then as I looked at the numbers and I said, if we really look at online retailing in Australia, it's still such a very, very small proportion of overall retail sales. So I think Australians spend in 2017 around about $25 billion online. And while that might seem like a lot, it still represented less than 8% of total retail spending. Um, off the... Um, of the $25 billion spent online, 80% was purchased through incumbent multi-channel retailers. So Big W Online, uh, Super Cheap Auto Online, Meyer Online. So it's a very small proportion going to pure play retailers, certainly overseas pure play retailers, such as eBay or Amazon or Alibaba. Um, so yeah, Amazon's been here uh, now for about seven months. S supermarkets are still operating, stores are still trading, shopping centers haven't closed their doors. Um, and I can see strategically that Amazon are really looking at how do we capture a, a broader chunk of that domestic market. A couple of ways they're doing it, geo-blocking Australian shoppers um, come July 1 into their US site, and that's going to force Australian shoppers into the domestic site. And they've got about 60 million products on offer, so choice is not going to be an issue for Australian consumers. Uh, and then certainly the second one is bringing in a prime service, um, which will sort of, again, cr increase the opportunities for I guess, Australian consumers to jump onto Amazon. So I think, um, in my understanding, uh, is that the two large capabilities of Amazon, um, is, well, that they, uh, they have um, what we might call patient capital. <laughs> yeah. So they don't have to make necessarily a profit in the short term. Uh, so they can, they can invest in whatever strategy they happen to go to have. One, another is uh, data and their ability to work with data. And the other one is fulfilment. Um, so uh, that they would hope, I think, to, uh, to master the game um, through their ability to give us same-day delivery or such uh, and to work out their logistics and distribution. Is, is that your take on that? Absolutely. So I, I think Amazon certainly have got deep pockets. I think last year they, they, their revenue was $180 billion. Uh, in comparison to Australia, that's, you know, that's significant. So they've certainly got plenty of... Uh, cash to um, you know to 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 take a slower version uh, and a slower move towards the market. Uh, data and, and information is vitally important, and they are very strategic in that. So they understand 
um, you know, what are the best selling products in a particular category. They'll make sure the most popular product is always at the top of the list when you go to search and they'll make sure that that particular product is the lowest in the marketplace. So if you're looking for a digital camera, or you're looking for toys, um, you're looking for sporting goods uh, or any product for that matter, uh, the most popular product that is searched, the most popular brand will always be at the top of the list. Uh, and that will, uh, that will constantly change. So if, if the market suddenly shifts this afternoon uh, or tomorrow or next week, that next most popular product will be at the top of the list and it will be the, the cheapest uh, available. That's not to say that every other product will be cheaper than anywhere else you can buy it, but they'll certainly always capture that top end of the market. So part of Amazon's uh, strategy too is um, that they are a platform player. So that, uh, I mean, I heard the, one of the um, procurement people from General, uh, from General Motors last week actually on Zoom saying that they are going to be uh, sourcing from, uh, from Amazon um, as, a plat as a platform player. So that I think my understanding would be retailers were thinking how are they, if at all, going to use the Amazon platform as part of their own strategy, is that? Yeah, I, th I think um, if, you're a big, if you're a major retailer, probably not so much. If you're a small retailer or a small business, it's a great opportunity to get your product into a broader market, global market. Um, fulfillment, I think, will continue to be challenging for Amazon here in Australia, and that's simply because we've got a very small population and it's very geographically diverse uh, across the country. Similar problems were associated in Canada, and I also draw a lot of parallels between Amazon's experience in Canada, entering Canada in 2010, and entering Australia um, last year. So again, very large landmass, very small distribution of population in certain areas. Um, so they, you know, they've struggled to, to gain traction. The other thing we find is that as they leave entering a market um, later and later, that they struggle to capture, uh, I guess, the lion's share of, of uh, market share. Um, they entered into the UK about 2006, 2007, Canada 2010, uh, obviously Australia 2017. Um, if we look at those markets, we can see that in comparison to the U US, where about 35% of online sales goes through our Amazon platform. Uh, in Canada, it's more like 12.5%, and Australia, I think the numbers are less than 8% currently. Um, eBay in Australia actually has the highest proportion, about 20% of online traffic. Uh, and that's because eBay's been established in the marketplace for 20 years. Mm, yes, that's true. So if we look at, I, I think when I was preparing for the interview, I actually saw, and looking at trends in retail, there's what they call chore um, retail and then sort of more experience um, retail. I haven't done much experiential retail yeah. lately, I've got to say, but certainly a lot of chore retail. So what do you think that, um, how that will change? If we just focus, a chore retail being grocery shopping, I suppose, is yeah. that right? How, how, how will I, will I do grocery shopping differently in uh, three to five years time, do you think, Harry? Well, well, yeah, I think, and that's really an interesting area. And I, I think, you know, listeners would have probably seen a lot of change in food and groceries in Australia, certainly in the last 10 at least the last 10 years. And, that, and that's certainly been indicated by, I guess, what we refer to as the price wars, which was really instigated by Aldi, the first international play that we saw into the Australian market 17 years ago. I noticed they're getting quite aggressive too, expanding their distribution. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and they've taken a very staged approach to growth in Australia. So starting 17 years ago in Sydney, one warehouse distribution centre, a couple of stores in Sydney, and they've slowly progressed up the eastern seaboard down into Melbourne. Uh, in the last two years, they've moved into San 
South Australia and Western Australia, but there's still a long way to go. They literally opened a, a new store at The Gap uh, yesterday. Um, so they're constantly growing. Uh, currently, they're, they're rated as the third largest food and grocery retailer in Australia, about 12.5%. Um, Coles is about 31 to 32% market share. Woolworths about 36 to 37%. Um, I think the growth of hourly has come at the expense of um, the Metcash Group, so Foodland, Foodworks and IGA stores. They've now fallen to around about 7.7-7.8% market share, so they're really struggling in their food and grocery divisions. Their, their hardware divisions, liquor divisions seem to be tracking okay. Um, but the whole market's splintering, I think, and, and maybe listeners have seen this. We've seen growth, certainly in that discounter area, um, and, and, and I think there's still an appetite for that discounter private label offer. So Aldi, we've got Coughland, the other German discounter coming into the market. They've got uh, properties in South Australia and Adelaide, also one in Melbourne, and they're currently looking at places in Sydney and also in Brisbane. Uh, they've been advertising strongly for professionals and executives um, for that group. They've just appointed a very young, um, I guess, Australian CEO. She's only 29 years of age. Wow, it's, that's amazing. Yeah, it's great to see um, young um, you know, women jumping into sort of a, a very important role, which has traditionally always been a very male-esque style role of management. So I think we'll see Coughland grow over the next three to five years. I think we're looking at probably 12 sites. These are very large big box retailers. Um, the next business I think we'll see, which is also owned by Coughland, which is owned by the Schwartz Group, is Lidl. And Lidl is just a slightly larger Aldi alternative. So if listeners have been through um, Europe or, or certainly the States recently and certainly the UK or Ireland, they would have seen in most cases an Aldi store directly opposite a Lidl store and vice versa. So they are direct competitors. I think the splintering that food and grocery market will have discounts at one end. I think in the middle of the market will have um, certainly Coles and Moors. I, I think they will continue to survive. I don't think their growth rates will be um, particularly special. I think they'll be subdued because of that growth in the discounter end of the market. And I think the other area we're seeing emerging now is that premium gourmet offer. And David Jones recently announced uh, strategically moving into that space with almost replicating that Marks and Spencer's food hall. Yeah, so they were going to do a champagne bar I saw in the in the Sydney store. They, well, Sydney was always famous for that oyster bar that you could go to, go to, you know. It was always very special for a trip to Sydney to go there, wasn't it? So experiential, again, sort of retail, I suppose. Absolutely. So I think if we look at sort of Brisbane, we've got um, you know, food stores at West End, we've got James Street Markets in, in, in the Valley. So these types of high-end food stores, uh, you know, will certainly target a certain demographic. So you think about inner city areas of Sydney and certainly Melbourne, um, here in Brisbane, parts of Adelaide, I think there's an attractive option for that type right, of product. Yeah, and yeah. also that, um, I mean, I was stunned to see uh, uh, sort of a, I think it was a little news piece on Current Affair or something, the millennials and their uh, the the food delivery that they get in a week, how much of their, I suppose, would be their grocery spend is actually a home delivery, food delivery spend. Oh, the U Foods and, and that, mm, the, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. and the, um, well, the Uber Eats and the deliveries. At, um, yes, I was stunned that that um, must be taking a fair chunk of the market, I think. Yeah, and, and there's certainly been um, a clear shift there. So we, we know that the, the traditional burgers and fries, fast food sector has, has, again, struggled to maintain growth. And certainly we're seeing declining sales in some categories. Where the, the move is now shifting is, is I guess into a, what we refer to as fast casual. So the operational efficiencies of fast food, but with the quality of casual dining. So Guzman Gomez, better quality Japanese, better quality sushi, 
um, you know, better quality Mexican uh, and better quality burger joints. If we have a look around. Oh, burgers. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Every, so we, burgers. We, we've moved away from that stodgy, dare I say, Big Mac and fries to a much better quality brioche bun with, with Swiss cheeses. And, and I think in response to that, we're now seeing the fast food joints move into that with their sort of M series range of better quality burgers and fries. So I think the market's shifting and, and, and it's funny how we, we see this splintering effect. So we're seeing it in food and groceries, we're seeing it in, in casual dining and fine dining, we're seeing it in fashion. So when you see splintering, it's either the, the cheap end, like the LD end of the market or it's high-end DJs, is that? Yeah, so, mm. yeah, if we have a look at discount department stores, all department mm. stores, uh, I guess, we've got certainly you know, Kmart leading the way. Uh, a re-energised um, target, although Guy Russell is still struggling to create a value proposition around target, I, I think he signalled that they'll close around about um, 20% of those stores and start to move it away from Kmart. I think for a while Kmart simply cannibalised the, the, the target sales. Um, Woolworths are turning around Big W, but that low-end discounted department store is working really well. Um, at the, the top end of the market, DJs are really differentiating themselves from the Meyer offer, which is really stuck in the middle. Uh, and even this week, they've announced sort of, you know, spending $200 million refurbishing their Sydney yes. store, which will be fabulous. It will be fabulous. And they're hoping to, I guess, emulate those great um, department stores, uh, Galleries Lafayette in uh, in France, in Paris, um, Harrods in London, certainly Macy's and, and uh, Nordstrom's in the States. So what I'm hearing is that physical retailing um, is still fighting on, yet we've seen that Westfield has departed from its uh, shopping centre um, empire, uh, which is interesting to see what, what, where they go with that. But um, will, will I still want to go to one of the large malls and do my shopping, do you think, in the, in the next five to ten? Yeah, I think so. I mean, while we often talk about the growth of online retailing, and there is growth there, it's in double-digit growth still, but it's still coming from a very, very low base. And, and online retailing certainly presents transactional convenience. I can do my shopping on my smartphone, on my tablet, on my way home, on the train. It's constrained in relation to delivery. And I, I, we will continue to struggle with that here in Australia because of the, the geographic distances. We think about online grocery shopping, which again, seems quite transactionally convenient. I can jump on, order my groceries, and we know we generally buy the same products every week anyway, yep. just put an automated order in place. Mm. But I don't want to wait 24 hours to get my order. Um, so, and that's the challenge, because the way we shop for groceries is more frequently than we've ever done before. That's certainly more... Um, so is Amazon Go going to deliver to me in the same day? They're not. No, so no. Amazon Prime in the US is certainly guaranteeing same-day delivery, if not next-day delivery. Here in Australia, it's, it's certainly a lower cost. So the introductory cost is $60 Australian to join, as opposed to $119 US for US um, uh, consumers. So this is, this is very much about capturing market share as quickly as possible. Uh, but even then, um, you'll get access here in Australia to free delivery, um, but up to two-day free delivery. So it'll take mm. about two days to get your so, delivery. Yeah, so the performance the same, same as Coles or, or Woolies. Or well, yeah, yeah, and those guys are doing some interesting stuff. We know that um, Coles are certainly trialling same-day delivery uh, in about 12 of their stores in Melbourne. Um, we're seeing that roll out across the nation. So fulfilling from stores, um, and, and then as long as your order's in by midday, ready for click and collect by 4pm, that's a four hour window, which is great. Uh, and then certainly moving into a, a six hour delivery. So delivered by 6pm that night. That's being trialled in some city stores. We know if we look at sort of UK, London, um, 
We've got Tesco's hiring another 900 drivers to um, facilitate same-day delivery. Um, Target in the US um, bought um, Grand Junction, which is a transportation firm, to try and facilitate same-day delivery. Uh, Aldi in the US um, linked up with Instacart to facilitate same-day delivery. So we're moving away from what I refer to as those price wars to time wars. It's time, time wars, yes, yeah. that's, what, that's what we're all pouring, I think. Well, so what you're describing, I think, is I'm certainly going to have uh, possibly more choice and more convenience. Um, but will, will the consumer actually win out of some of the retail trends that we're seeing? Will we be better served generally in terms of cost and quality and, uh, and convenience of delivery? Yeah, I, I think that the, the buck still stops with the consumer. And, and I think if you don't know what your offer is to the consumer, you can differentiate your offer clearly to the consumer. I think that's where retailers are getting themselves into some strife. So, um, you know, we've seen certainly in the last two years um, very big retail fashion brands collapse. So Payless Shoes, Pumpkin Patch, which was around for a long time. If we go back a few more years, we look at Colorado Group that collapsed, um, Marks, um, Rhodes and Bennett, Maggie T, and the list just goes on. And when you look at those types of fashion offers into the market, in the 80s and the 90s they were great, but we've had the emergence of fast fashion retailers that we've never had in Australia you know, 10 years ago. So Zara's here, H&M's here, Uniqlo's here, um, Topshop was here for a while. Um, and, and consumers look at that offer and go, well listen, why would I spend $49 on a kid's polo shirt at, at Pumpkin Patch when I can pay $14.99 for one at H&M or Zara? Zara Kids, and it's fashionable, it's on trend, and that trend is constantly changing every eight to 12 weeks. Um, so the value proposition is very different. Um, and I, I think, you know, to some extent, those, those smaller fashion retailers were slow with, their, with their, their turnover of inventory. Yes, or maybe slow to adapt in some way. I'm just wondering perhaps um, whether there'll be a consolidation around a few players and um, we will miss out on, I guess, competitive, that what we might uh, get through competition, the forces of competition. Because I know going back to groceries and delivery, if I look at my Coles delivery, a good third of it is Coles brand. And I didn't realise actually until I looked, you know, <laughs> and I thought, I oh, know that they're getting quite aggressive with their home brand. Um, so, and there's a danger to that. It's convenience, probably the cheaper option. But over time, is that a good thing that uh, we'll have sort of some monopolistic forces, I suppose? It's interesting. So uh, John Durkin, who's now the MD of Coles, signalled uh, a move towards a 40% proportion of private label products in their stores in the next five years. That's a significant shift. They're sitting at around about 24% to 25% currently. The average in Australia is about 18% private label range. Now, heading towards that 40%, we're starting to move into European trends. So Spain, Germany, um, the UK sits around about 40, 42%. Uh, in the States, it's around about 17, 18% similar to Australia. So strategically, it makes sense to increase that proportion of private label product. There's more margin for retailers. It enables you to differentiate yourself from your competitors because you only own that brand. Your competitor doesn't own that brand. When you consider products like SPC or Coca-Cola or Nestle, you can compete on price because the brand is the same. Um, it's more challenging to compete on price if it's a supermarket-owned brand. Listen, it presents challenges for, I guess, um, suppliers, particularly fringe suppliers, those products that are nice to have. They, they will start to disappear off shelves because you physically can't increase your proportion of your own supermarket-branded product without letting go of some of those fringe and nice-to-have brands. 
But in saying that, it also presents some opportunities for smaller players like the IGAs of this world to say that we can really now position ourselves as a purveyor of sort of local food and not national branded products. Well, um, yes, it, it has been a big week and I find the whole territory because the retailers up, you know, at the cutting edge of quite a lot of forces um, in, in, in our economy. So it's, it's quite fascinating to watch. Um, we've just been, I suppose we should, we're getting onto our time limit, I suppose, uh, self-imposed, but um, we do like to hear a little bit about um, the academic as a person. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and some, sometimes we ask academics to share a little bit about, you know, what they like to do or read other than their own discipline and uh, we, we don't meet with much of a response. The academics are so, you know, one tracked as they have to be. But you had said that you did have a life outside of academia. I know that you worked in industry for quite a while, so you've retained an interest in other things. So are you reading something that's interesting you at the moment? So, so I'm reading um, the, the next book um, called Columbiana, and the original book was called Marching Powder. So these are, these are um, almost bio, uh, biotopical types of books. It talks about uh, a backpacker that, that got stitched up in South America for trying to traffic cocaine and ended up in uh, La Paz, uh, an interesting sort of um, uh, prison that almost runs uh, like its own economy where you have to buy your own jail sale and run your own businesses and pay for your own food. And yeah, it's quite an interesting book. So the second one is Columbiana. Uh, so he's, re he's writing that, I'm, I'm reading that currently. Um, but yeah, listen, I guess I've always considered myself to be a pracademic, not a, an academic. And I spent 25 years in industry before I came into an academic role. And I think it's vitally important. QUT really sort of stands out as being a university for the real world. And I, I think you can't sort of stand there with your hand in your heart in front of a class and say, listen, I've got no industry experience. I'm now going to teach you all about industry and particularly marketing strategy. So I think coming into, I guess, this, um, this element of my career with a I guess a level of sort of industry expertise, I think, is fine. And I, and I, I get a sense that the students love it. I, I talk and, and speak to third year level students at their capstone level, and certainly their post grad students that are coming here from industry, and they want to sort of get some commercial insight. And I think being able to bring that mix of commercial insight with, I guess, academic knowledge, I think, is vitally important. Well, you've given us a lot of commercial insight, Gary, today. So thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing you at, uh, at The Grocery Doctor, your Twitter handle. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. <laughs> Take care, guys. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of QUT Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, Executive Education for the Real World. You can comment on the podcast or make suggestions for future guests at execinsights at qut.edu.au. We would love to hear from you. If you would like more information about professional development for yourself or your team, please search QUTEX, that's Q-U-T-E-X, and you will find our full range of programs. I'm your host, Kate Joyner, with sound recording and editing by Lance Scaife-Elliott. See you next time.